Humane Nature is an animal tourism podcast with discussions of animal abuse, injury, and medicine. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Human Nature. I am Stacia, your host. I'm very sorry if I don't sound myself right now. I've been sick for the last few days, but tested negative for COVID, so yay. Luckily, the majority of this episode is a pre-recorded interview that I did, so you won't have to deal with all of this for very long. But let's jump into some news before we get into that interview. So I do have some personal news. I am attempting to become more present on TikTok. I'm recording a few more videos every week. You can follow me on TikTok at Stumble Safari. I'll do like little clips on animal tourism and travel, but also just like, you know, day-to-day life. You know, popular trends that are going on on TikTok are always fun. And for those of you who have been following me for a while um, and have met my hedgehog, Mr. Darcy, he has nearly doubled in size in the last few weeks since I've been here. I will post an update photo of him soon. He just upgraded his house and he is living his best life right now. So for some travel news, multiple airlines such as Frontier, Southwest, and Alaska are having massive end-of-summer flight deals right now um, as of recording this in August 2022. You can check them out on their websites directly or through Skyscanner, um, not sponsored. This is how I usually find out about these massive sales um, is through Skyscanner and through um, the newsletters of of the airlines that I usually fly fly with. Be careful, though. Flight cancellations in 2022 have surpassed pre-pandemic numbers. Nearly 130,000 flights were canceled in the U.S. alone from January until July of this year. This doesn't include the rest of July or this first half of August or any data from other countries. So it's it's been rough, y'all. Make sure if you are traveling both domestically and internationally, that you get some kind of travel insurance. Protect that flight. Oh, there's been a lot of horror stories about airlines not refunding tickets after they have canceled flights. So uh, go ahead and insure those tickets to make sure that if the worst happens and your flight is canceled, that you can be refunded for that. Finally, a recent study calculated that um, the most expensive tourist taxes in the world in in various cities and all top three spots were in the u.s so number one was honolulu two san francisco and three los angeles the fourth spot is amsterdam which was rated the most expensive city in europe for tourists five was orlando yet another u.s city and six cancun mexico Multiple other cities and countries are beginning to add tourist fees and taxes, so travel may start to get even more expensive. For some wildlife news, the rush to build wind farms across the United States to combat climate change is negatively affecting golden eagles. The numbers of golden eagles are dropping due to collisions with these wind turbines as well as rising temperatures affecting breeding ranges. So they're getting hit from both ends, <laughs> you know, um, they're being affected by climate change. Um, they, their breeding areas are shrinking due to 
raising temperatures. But in order to combat that, we we're building these wind turbines to try to use less fossil fuels, and they are colliding with them and, and dying that way as well. Golden eagles were once critically endangered, but we did manage to save them. Now they are under pretty severe threats again. So uh, we do want to keep an eye on that. They are not considered endangered as of yet again, but um, they are at risk because of these various things put against them. The long-tailed macaque has been added to the endangered species list. This does show the failure of the state of things as primates are some of the most opportunistic and adaptable animals in the world, especially the macaque. It is extremely adaptable and it's, it's really, really upsetting and really shows how bad things are that it has been added to the endangered species list. This monkey has um, is often kept on chains as pets especially throughout Southeast Asia or killed as pests um, on farms and stuff so hopefully now that they are put on the endangered species list um, they will get some more protection a once thought extinct hummingbird was spotted in Colombia this week so ending on some good news here the Santa Marta's uh, sabruing I hope I'm saying that right is an emerald green hummingbird, beautiful, beautiful bird, um, was spotted for the first time since 2010 in Colombia. And this spotting was only the second spotting of this bird since 1946. So absolutely amazing. It's still out there. Um, this experienced bird watcher managed to snap a photo of it. And I highly encourage you to go look it up. It's amazing. So today you will be hearing an interview that I did with my very good friend Gio. He is amazing. He really knows his shit. Um, we're going to be talking about whale tourism, um, kind of focusing on whale watching because that's where the majority of uh, tourist interactions with whales come from. But we are going to briefly talk about some other forms of whale tourism around the world and uh you're not going to hear my voice very much because he knows his stuff. And it was really, really fun chatting with him. So uh, let's give a listen. Hi, guys. Um, so I'm sitting here with my buddy, Gio. Um, we're going to be talking about whale tourism, probably mostly whale watching tourism today. But we may get into some other juicy topics. Uh, I don't know. We're both pretty, pretty passionate about the topic. So uh, Gio, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm uh, I'm Giovanni Galarza, and uh, I am a graduate, a marine science major. I have my bachelor in marine science, specializing in marine mammal research. I attended the Evergreen State College and graduated uh, in 2019. I'm a dual citizen. I was originally born and raised in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and that's where I initially fell in love with the ocean and fell in love with uh, whales and marine mammal conservation initially. Uh, and then me and the family moved uh, down to Washington State. And so we've kind of remained around the Pacific Northwest for my entire life. It's, it's been a wonderful environment to come to learn about our marine ecosystems and our natural ecosystems of all types. Whale watching has been a, a particularly inspiring aspect throughout my life, being able to see 
our local killer whale pods. Perhaps some of you out there in the audience are familiar with our northern and southern resident killer whales of Canada and Washington State, respectively. And uh, in with that comes comes a variety of different perspectives with regards to the ecotourism industry. And uh, there's a lot of push and pull with regards to uh, how we regulate that and how we view the ethics of whale watching, specifically out here. I'll try and focus my attention on, on what I know. And yeah. that, be, that being the, the region in the Pacific Northwest. And we're one of the most popular places in the world to come whale watching anyway. So uh, oh, I'll say yeah, <laughs> um, which I am super embarrassed to admit. I still, I've been in Seattle for a year. I still have not been on a whale watching tour. I know. Gotta change I'm that. I'm dying to go. Um, you know, I just got swept up in, you know, work and everything. But uh, I'm really hoping to go this fall when my mom comes to visit. But oh, there we go. That's um, when the humpbacks are starting to come. Oh, yes. See, that's the other thing. I know nothing about the different seasonality of the species that we get around here um yeah. so isn't right now kind of like orca killer whale season right now is definitely killer whale season uh, the marine mammal watching in the pacific northwest generally starts to get really exciting late may early june and then even more so as the summer progresses Initially, you're going to see our, our local killer whales. We have our resident fish eating population, our critically endangered population out here, which are, are now becoming almost exclusively summer residents, passerbys. Mm-hmm. And as these animals are uh, unfortunately facing the threat of extinction with a lot of um, depleting food stocks, uh, particularly salmon, uh, Chinook salmon, we're seeing what do you call it? We're seeing a switch in the demographics of the killer whale ecotypes. So there's a second population of killer whales out here. We call them Biggs killer whales, formerly known as transient killer whales because of their free roaming tendencies. And they're starting to pop up pretty frequently throughout the year in Mm -hmm. Puget Sound and in the surrounding waters. And so those are mainly going to be the species that most people are going to be targeting. Your transient killer whales are going to be here pretty much year round. Southern resident killer whales coming back usually around July, August, and then sticking around through the remainder of summer as the salmon runs start to start to really crack, crank up. As with our humpback whales, our humpback whales usually arrive probably around mid-July or so, and they hang around for well into the month of September, sometimes into October. And we started to realize that uh, some individuals are actually overwintering here. And oh, so, awesome. yeah. And that so maybe due to climate change, might be due to <laughs> climate change. It may also be due to the animal's personal preferences. They may not be of reproductive age. They may be subadults. We're noticing a lot of subadults that stick around here and, you know, they may not have that drive to make it all the way down to Mexico to, you know, go be frisky with everybody else and start their own families. So, you know, we, we, we love a good single whale. <laughs> Can relate. No. I'm, I'm married. I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, not starting a family anytime soon. So I do have a question from a listener. I did a little bit of research on it, but I was not, you know, that, 
wall was not able to access a bunch of articles about this, mm-hmm. um, about how do the boats themselves and whale watching influence um, whales? Um, so like noise pollution, actual physical pollution in the mm-hmm. water, and then maybe even like actual like whale watching boats versus like cruises, because we get a lot of like cruises docking in the Seattle area sure. um, in the summer when all the, the whales are coming in. Absolutely. So there are a variety of factors uh, that go into the whale watching industry with regards to how these vessels and how our presence affects the behavior of marine mammals. Um, There are set guidelines that were initially developed back in 1972 with the passing of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the United States. And these guidelines, federally speaking, are, are, are pretty broad and will vary from region to region. Here in the Pacific Northwest, boaters are asked to keep a minimum distance of 100 yards away from whales and dolphins, uh, 50 yards at absolute minimum for other marine mammals, and 200 yards for our resident killer whales. Um, Washington State does not mess around with their environmental regulations. It's becoming a contentious topic the uh, interactions between boaters and wildlife out here in Puget Sound. So there is, there is the, the noise pollution aspect of it. And I think this is one of the, this is one of the most popular topics, one of the most, one of the major topics and boat noise drowns out whale sonar. I'm, I'm sure we could infer this, but for those of you who don't know, boat noise will drown out whale sound. Um, And there are ways to mitigate this. Researchers have found that dropping your boat speed uh, or shutting off your engine completely would be even best. But even just dropping your boat speed can improve uh, whale echolocation and allow the animals to communicate. One of the things that we're really concerned about in particular is crowding. And that is just having a large number of boats surrounding a group of whales. This can negatively impact them in ways like disrupting natural behaviors like feeding or socializing. Boaters that drive through pods of whales can, whether intentionally or not, can end up separating mothers and calves and send the entire pod into disarray and kind of confuse and disorient the animals. And worse, worst of all, something that is starting to be talked about more and more is vessel strikes. And so everybody wants to have their magic moment with nature and, you know, right, Right. rightfully so. Uh, I think it's asking a lot of people to stay away, but at the end of the day, it is in everybody's best interest. We have to Mm -hmm. remember that not only are whales very uh, sonically geared, So they need to be able to hear underwater and able to communicate with each other and navigate their surroundings, but they're also large and they can be, they can be dangerous. One of the, one of the real risks that comes with whale watching is not really understanding how contextual whale behavior can be. And I think something that we forget is that we want to attribute human emotions and human sensations to the behaviors of animals. It's how we connect and it's how we can relate to them. And so a person without a marine mammal research background may see a whale jumping and say, oh, that animal is jumping for joy. I jump for joy. 
people jump for joy. This is an expression of happiness or of glee. And we're starting to realize that it really depends. First of all, no one really knows why whales breach. It's a variety of factors. It could be the removal of parasites in noisier waters or in uh, cloudier waters. It could be a way to signal to other animals, hey, I'm here, this is where to go, or this is where you should not be going. But something that I don't think gets appreciated enough is that breaching can also be an extremely territorial behavior. And so there have been a number of news articles popping up recently, especially with the arrival of our whales here and with the arrival of summer. People are out there on the water and you see a whale, you want to see it up close. Mm -hmm. it's, it's magical to see a whale in the wild and it's not something everybody gets to experience. But there is a way to go about it responsibly. And so you have particularly kayakers who are not producing any noise, but that also comes with a risk is that mm -hmm. now these whales don't even know you're there. Right. So yeah. um, you can end up being swiped by one of their fins or knocked into the water. And these waters are very, very cold. Uh -huh, um, even in summer. Yep. Even in the summer. <laughs> so the risk of hypothermia, if you're in the water for prolonged periods of time is very real. And then not only that, we've had uh, incidents where Animals are either struck directly by boats passing through, the animals don't know you're there, or the animal becoming territorial and aggressive and actually jumping out of the water and landing on watercraft. Luckily, none of these incidents have, to my knowledge, resulted in any fatalities, but it does give us a stark reminder that, hey, you know, these animals need space and they, they deserve wow. our respect. Yeah. They are wild animals. We can't predict their every move and we need to remember that. Yeah, um, you hit like so many of my, <laughs> my talking <laughs> points. That was awesome. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about a lot of people really want to kayak out here with um, the orcas, especially. Yeah. And as magical as it seems, then you see those, you know, pictures on Instagram and it seems like so cool. And I'm terrified. I would be so scared seeing oh, yeah. an orca swimming underneath just a flimsy little kayak, you know, because uh, they have been known to be extremely aggressive. Have you seen that video that went viral recently of the two girls in like a kayak that got swallowed by a whale? Oh, I, yes, I did see that video. Yes, they and ended so up being fine. <laughs> Everyone listening, they're fine, they're unharmed. But there, there was like a slow-mo capture of a whale coming up and literally like swallow, I say swallowing, but more like putting it in their mouth, not like mm -hmm. actually swallowing, ingesting it. The two girls in their kayak. Yeah. It's absolutely nuts. It's, it's, it's a real risk. And, you know, I just learned about this recently, the anatomy of baleen whales, whales without teeth, they have the strainers, you know, mm -hmm. um, humpback whales, gray whales, etc. They actually don't have the same uh, physiological mechanisms that toothed whales have in order to use echolocation. And right, they don't have the like, uh, kind of hump on their forehead. Yeah, they, right? they don't, they don't have the melon. And so Melon, they, they can, yeah, they can't use biosonar and that's kind of what renders them 
oblivious to the presence of large objects in the water, whether it's a container ship or a kayak in the middle of a school of fish. Right. And so that's, that's also another thing to keep in mind is that not all of these animals are equipped with the same set of tools and that, that can render them disabled, so to speak. And that is an inherent risk that comes with, with kayaking. And just to segue here really quick, did you hear about the diver in Maine or Massachusetts, somewhere in the Northeast, who ended up in the mouth of a feeding humpback whale while I diving for lobster? So. He ended up so. in the hospital, was also okay at the end of the day, but nonetheless, I highly cannot recommend swimming in the water with feeding humpback whales. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily be scared about being like actually eaten by yeah. a whale, but the threat of drowning or severe mm. bodily injury while underwater then leading to drowning is yeah. insane. Um, it is insane. A breaching whale that hits you or your boat or like it's nuts. They're huge. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, I just want to, um, for everybody who uh, listened to that, um, this is part of the, like, my whale fun facts that I was going to do at the end, but the um, the two groups of whales that we just talked about, the uh, uh, baleen whales are the ones with the kind of, like, fibrous, we call them teeth, but they're not really teeth, like the fibrous uh, across where their teeth would be, mm-hmm. um, and they're filter feeders, and then there's the toothed whales, like your orcas um, and dolphins that um, actually hunt for food. So the, the hunter whales have a melon, like this big lump on the front of their forehead that helps them echolocate their prey. But the filter feeders don't need to echolocate because they're eating like tiny krill and stuff like that, which is Mm -hmm. why a lot of these injuries and things are happening with like humpbacks who aren't you know, necessarily able to see you there because the, the echolocation is a big way of, about how these um, toothed whales are able to quote unquote, see you. Um, yeah, see absolutely. You yeah. Just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. And then you talked about the, you said 200 yard to however the distance away that you need to be from mm-hmm. a whale. I always harp on, um, on this podcast, I harp on the six foot rule with land animals. Um, yeah. At a minimum, I'm like six foot rule wasn't just for COVID. Like stay <laughs> at least six feet away from any, you know, land animal. Yeah. And obviously, much, much, much higher. The larger you get, animal wise, and then whenever you're in the water in a boat and everything. A hundred percent. And you know. With regards to that six foot rule, I do, I do like that. I do like that a lot. And there is, there is a reason for that. You know, as Stacia said, it's, it's very much encouraged in this community of animal lovers to keep your distance. And that's, that's not just for the animal's sake in order to carry out natural behavior, but that's also for your safety. You know, as, as we mentioned, like um, these animals are large, they are unpredictable and, you know, anything with a mouth can bite. You know, I, I see a lot of these videos going around on TikTok about, you know, land dog, domestic dog meets water dog meets seal. Yes. And it's it's very cute. It's very as, cute. Yeah, I will as not cute lie. As it is. It's not a domesticated animal. And on a previous episode, I don't remember quite which episode it was. I think it was the episode I did on 
um, animal cafes throughout mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, but the differences between a wild, a trained and a domesticated animal are, or, or a wild exotic pet and then domestic mm-hmm. are, are so vastly different. hundred um, percent. So we were going to get into just how difficult it really is to study whales. It's really difficult to keep them in captivity in any kind of way. And we're, kind of phasing that out, you know, with places like SeaWorld and stuff or keeping cephalopods in general. But do you want to touch on how and why it is so difficult to study whales in the wild? Yeah, of course. So as I mentioned previously, my area of expertise is marine mammal research. And, you know, as as we said, it's very difficult to study them in the wild because, well, they live in the ocean. (laughs) And, and, you know, one of the, one of the limiting factors is the very, very small amount of time that whales and dolphins actually spend at the surface. So being able to observe a lot of species uh, comes with limiting factors like, you know, we can't really travel out to open ocean without a lot of expensive equipment, spending a lot of money on fuel and resources to keep people out there for long periods of time. And then not only that, but it's really difficult to follow them. So some of the ways in which we kind of alleviate these these boundaries, if you would, uh, these barriers to studying whales is actually by using ecotourism to our advantage. A more common phenomena is, or rather, uh, a phenomenon that's gaining in popularity with a lot of researchers and biologists is the use of citizen scientists and our general population as means of helping us keep an eye on wildlife. And this in particular is is a very, call it an intimate topic for me. I spent my <laughs> last, I spent my last six month long internship with a research group in Olympia called Cascadia Research Collective. And uh, we studied primarily the larger species of whales, blue whales, humpbacks, gray whales, fins. And my project before graduating was to essentially compile a ton of observation sheets of humpback whale sightings in Monterey, California from 1992 to 2018. Oh my goodness. Yes, it was uh, it was a lot of digitizing, a lot of time spent behind a computer screen yes. typing in all this information. But one of the cool things about this is that we can save on a lot of resources by utilizing whale watch groups for the purpose of research. So, you know, there there comes the the conversation of, you know, what constitutes an ethical research agency and obviously, or rather an ethical ecotourism agency. And you're going to look for a lot of factors with regards to how, you know, these people, how they interact with their wild animals, what sort of values they want to put forward and want to uh, express to the general public. And Mm -hmm. the group we took this data from, Monterey Bay Whale Watch, is a very popular whale watching company in, well, Monterey, California. And, <laughs> and um, we were able to utilize a bunch of data sheets with humpback whale sighting from, you know, this effectively nearly 20 year long period. And we can kind of get an insight of 
what the populations are doing around there. And so, you know, my ultimate goal was to compile an online database where we could essentially uh, compile and synchronize all of this information and sort of look at the trends of humpback whale sightings in Monterey, California. Now, there is a limiting factor here, and that is essentially what is the quality of data that these people are taking? Right. Yeah. And so sometimes the data being taken and being reported was extremely detailed. You know, you got your GPS coordinates, you had your weather conditions, and granted, these are all basic aspects of taking quality data. And unfortunately, sometimes you would get presumably a more inexperienced individual on board taking data, and they may not know to list all the information, or they may bias their observations and select only for a certain type of species. Maybe one day right. they're targeting killer whales and they want to see killer whales. And so you're not reporting your humpback whales or your gray whale sightings, even though you're seeing them out there. Mm-hmm. But no, ecotourism is generally becoming a very reliable way to sort of keep track of the movements of animals. Out here in the Pacific Northwest, we have Orca Network, which is essentially a connection of a bunch of different people, research organizations, and citizens of the surrounding areas. And they're always submitting reports. Every time the whales show up, you'll get a new notification. I've subscribed to their newsletter, and granted, they don't release it until about a week after all the action has happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little delayed in that sense, but we do get to kind of keep a, a real-time logbook of what's showing up in Puget Sound and how our oceans are also changing in response to environmental conditions. Yeah, um, I'm in my research, I did find that um, a bunch of uh, like around the world, so not just in, you know, Pacific Northwest, but a lot of these more ethical or ethically focused whale watching tour companies are partnering with scientists mm-hmm. um, and this, they will actually like just go out on the boat that's already going out for this whale watching tour in order to collect their own data. So um, that's really, really cool. Popped in my head while you were chatting. Did you hear about this? I think it was called like a snot bot that was released uh, maybe a few months ago. I talked about it as part of like my little news segment a while ago, but like it's a drone that can track pods of whales without you know like affecting them because they're not on the water and then whenever Mm -hmm. they come up to uh breathe and they spray all the like particles and stuff in the air the bot it's like a drone that sweeps down and collects it on petri dishes and then takes it to scientists so that they study like microbiomes and whales in a like a non-invasive way yeah it's so cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. The sort of stuff that we're, that we're using. And actually I'm going to plug him really quick. Jordan yeah. Lerma from Hawaii was one of my coworkers at Cascadia research collective and has become their specialty drone operator over there and has, what also a been, title. I know, right. <laughs> and has also been involved with um, our Southern resident killer whale studies affiliated with uh, national oceanic atmospheric administration, NOAA for short. And he does operate some of these snot bots. And not only are they using these drones to quite literally collect whale sneezes in order to analyze their microbiome on the inside, but they're also using, what do you call it? Phototelemetry. Phototelemetry is the word. 
And it is, uh, it's a technology that essentially is analyzing the body conditions of whales and dolphins to sort of determine their physical health. Out here in the Pacific Northwest, it's used for, for assessing the body health or the body composition of our local killer whales. And unfortunately, because of their uh, depleting food sources, we are noticing that they are getting skinnier and skinnier. But on the plus side of that, when we do finally see a, uh, a new birth in the population, normally we can, uh, we can have a pretty good idea of when that's about to happen because using these drones, you can actually see when placed side by side uh, the images of the same whale as the mother starts to swell up during her pregnancy and put on a bunch of weight and she gets her own little baby bump that's you know really really quite special to be able to observe that in, in that kind of sense. So adorable, a little whale <laughs> baby bump. I love it. <laughs> it's also very difficult to study how tourism itself is affecting whale populations simply because we don't have a lot of pre-tourism data, like baseline data. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whale watching tours really started to take off in like the 1950s-ish. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't release any like protective laws or anything until what, like the 70s? Oops, yeah. So that's 20 years of... Of missed opportunity. Rampant. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't even know what was going on. And then before that... Very difficult to collect. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's difficult now with all the technology that we have. And I think prior to 1950, we have next to no baseline data for previous, like, pre-tourism. But then it's also like we have, like, no data for pre-whaling, <laughs> you know, yeah. history. No, um, it's, a lot so. of, uh, it's a lot of going back into uh, old whaling logbooks and essentially trying to construct this big puzzle based on what people actually recorded and you know granted that may be that may be vastly undersampling what was actually taken or how many animals actually died during this era mm -hmm. perhaps some takes were not reported perhaps some animals inadvertently died and drowned in the hunting progress and the hunting process and so it's it's very hard to get a pre a pre industry idea of what these whale populations look like and sort of have like a baseline of of what we're aiming towards we can estimate and i think current estimates have projected you know about 3 million whales in total were taken during the days of commercial whaling and it varied from population to population. Mm -hmm. Sperm whales, I think they had their populations reduced by about two thirds. Blue whales had their populations reduced and specifically Antarctic blue whales had their populations reduced by 90%. And Atlantic gray whales don't exist anymore. Yeah. We only have Pacific gray whales now. Um, so sad. it is sad. Yeah. Um, well, that's kind of a great but sad segue into uh, something I didn't know existed, which we talked about before we started recording, was uh, whale hunting tourism, which mm -hmm. apparently is a thing. Um, so commercial whaling was banned pretty much worldwide in 1986. Um, however, there are four countries that are still participating in commercial whaling at the time of recording this. Um, and that is Japan, Norway, Iceland, and Greenland. So 
we don't really know exactly how many whales whales are killed every year, um, but it's definitely over the thousand mark. Mm-hmm. And mostly fin, is it mink or minky? Am minky. I in- minky and say SEI whales? Yep, say, say whales. whales. Yes. So go. fin and say whales are both endangered. Mm-hmm. Um, and minky whales are labeled as least concern, but they, because they are not protected, because they're least concerned, their numbers are rapidly decreasing because they're the ones who are most often hunted because they're not protected. Mm -hmm. So uh, whale hunting, like inviting tourists out on whaling ships apparently is a thing in Iceland. Um, The country is trying to get rid of it. Um, There's, I guess, one company left (laughs) that is still (laughs) pushing to do it despite everyone yelling at them, um, the government, the tourism vector, the locals telling them they want them to stop, them literally hemorrhaging money. It's not profitable to them anymore. And it, it being proven that it's terrible for the environment. But they have picked up again this summer. So they're out as we're speaking right now. Um, they stopped in 2019, end of t- 2019, early 2020, because of COVID and they're starting it up again mm. this summer being 2022, but they are hopeful. A lot of articles and stuff that I read are hopeful that they will be out of business and that whaling will be finished in Iceland by 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Japan, it's not so much part of the tourism vector, but they've just got like a really massive, very, Underregulated fishing, <laughs> so they do like the shark fins and yeah. meat, and mm-hmm. um, so less about them because it's not really about the the tourism, which is what I'm focusing on. Norway and Greenland and Iceland, but um, their their whaling as part of the tourism vector is by selling tourists whale meat. And being like, oh, this is like a traditional thing, which I guess technically it is. But Mm -hmm. that tradition and getting tourists to eat whale is what is keeping their whaling industry alive. So, yes, maybe don't eat whale. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't to these places. Maybe (laughs) don't eat it. It doesn't sound good anyway. They sound like real like, you know, blubbery and. Mm -hmm. I've heard from other people who have tried it that it's just not good anyway. And that it's still just like, it's just like a, oh, this thing that I did type of thing, but you're kind of fueling the whaling industry by doing this. So absolutely as an ethical tourist, just don't eat whale meat. (laughs) Yeah. In in general. Yeah. Just in general. and, And not only that, there comes another layer into that conversation while commercial whaling is kind of its own beast. Something that, you know, I think is important to remember is a lot of isolated, particularly island, island communities and, um, and indigenous communities in, yes. uh, the, in North and South America and elsewhere. Some of these people still do rely on maintaining that tradition. So that is using hand, uh, hand powered, man powered boats, um, handheld harpoons, etc., going out saying prayers and having a ceremony before the animal is taken and also doing so in a very in a very conservative manner that is harvesting 
only what can absolutely be fully used by the community. And while the commercial whaling industry is, you know, largely bleeding out, so to speak, (laughs) you know, it, it is kind, it, it has uh, kind of soured these perspectives on these communities. And it's important to note that, you know, these, these populations are not the ones who have historically resulted in the cataclysmic decline of whales and dolphins around the world. We have to remember that this was, call it revolutionary, if you will, although maybe not the best choice of words. It was a revolutionary industry in order to essentially provide oil to the entire world, to light lanterns and start producing petroleum-based products using whale oil. But even in the wake of banning commercial whaling worldwide, regardless of the countries that still participate in participate in it today, the ways in which we have effectively trashed our oceans has slithered down that line and has started to impact the people who still do rely on whale meat as a means of sustenance. So while it's generally in our best interest to not eat whale meat, one, because one could argue it's an unethical practice, especially when you consider that whales are endangered and are still struggling to recover from the commercial whaling era. It's also unhealthy. Um, The process is called bioaccumulation, where pollutants enter the food chain at the base level from plants and photosynthesizers. This is not only terrestrial plants, but this is also photosynthetic organisms in our marine and freshwater ecosystems, plankton, uh, algaes, uh, will absorb these pollutants and introduce them into the food chain. And so as larger upper tier predators feed on these prey items, they are ingesting it and that is absorbed into their bodies and primarily stored in fatty tissues Mm -hmm. uh, around the organism. Which is like the entire body of the whale. (laughs) Literally the entire body of the whale. So as you're climbing that food chain, you know, you have these animals, these sea lions, whales, and larger species that have higher concentrations of fat stores and all of those pollutants, plastics, uh, flame retardants, oil, uh, et cetera, all those toxins are becoming built up in their bodies. And when people eat that, they can suffer some very severe health risks. And, you know, this, yeah, this includes mercury poisoning. And it's an unfortunate fact that a lot of communities who primarily use whale as means of sustenance, and, you know, this is, this is going to be primarily people in, in the Arctic regions, Um, Mm -hmm. People who are still consuming whale as their primary mode of sustenance are unfortunately being linked to very much shorter lives, sometimes as short as 30 to 40 years, just simply because of the amount of toxins that are present in whale meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mercury poisoning is no joke. No, Um, it's not. But it's never like the, so the whaling industry, it's never really ever the um, indigenous people who are contributing to this. It's when the rest of the world 
industrializes it. Um, <laughs> so I don't want anybody to think that I'm like attacking um, indigenous tribes who are still doing this kind of thing because they're doing it in a very respectful way. They're honoring the animal, they're honoring their culture. And it, I, you know, as a white woman, it is not my job to judge yes. them for that. Um, I am not PETA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's it like my last episode, I talked about uh, civet cat coffee and how it started out as very small scale, fine. It was actually pretty mutually beneficial for the farmers and the animals. And mm-hmm. then they industrialized it. And that is when all these issues came up. And it's kind of the same with whaling. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... So we talked briefly about like people up here kayaking and stuff with orcas. Do you know much about swimming with whale tourism and like more warm watered destinations like Mexico, Australia? I can I can touch on it a little bit. And there is very much contention, uh, even in the research community, as well as within the public eyes about how how swimming with whales and dolphins, and just interacting with wild animals in general can be pretty controversial. Again, there's multiple sides to this conversation. So um, there's, there's there's multiple perspectives with regards to this, and I'll try and touch on as many as I possibly can. So, so we need to remember that we are all part of nature. And to consider human beings as being some separate entity holier than thou, so to speak, is quite honestly doing us a disservice with regards to our global ecosystem. It, it, others, it others the earth from a variety of issues and a variety of topics. And so we talk about giving marine mammals space and sort of putting up a barrier between people and wildlife because of the culture that has now effectively been ingrained in human society globally. And we need to remember that human society as of right now is dominated by capitalism. And the primary goal with regards to most entities is to make money. And so with this in mind, there are several arguments about why you should and why you shouldn't be swimming with these animals. And let's start, let's start on the easier one, why you shouldn't be swimming with these animals. One, they're federally protected. Um, Mm. I think that goes without saying you can suffer a very extreme fine and even jail time, depending on where you're at uh, for interacting with marine mammals in the wild. One of the dangers of doing this other than the legal consequences is you sort of diminish their natural sense of wariness around human beings. Mm -hmm. And in swimming with whales and dolphins and in interacting with wildlife in this way, you can accustom them to human presence in ways that now makes our existence more dangerous to them. So in swimming with whales and dolphins and effectively soliciting them to approach you, 
you know, you may be one human being, you may be one person and your, what do you call it? Your motives may not be malicious. You, you may not have bad intentions in wanting to interact with. Normally isn't. With it normally isn't. And it, it genuinely isn't for a lot of situations. However, the ripple effect here is that when we do this, we are effectively inviting these animals into dangerous spaces. So now they are becoming more accustomed to human contact in areas where marine mammals are actively fed by people. And there are cases in which this occurs, um, both legally and illegally. In these areas where marine mammals are being interacted with on an intimate level and being fed and being touched and being swam with, they become more susceptible to injury and death when they approach watercraft. So one of the one of the higher risk factors for whales and dolphins with regards to environmental damage is the risk of vessel strikes. And you can see this a lot in places like Florida, where feeding dolphins has resulted in a lot more boat strikes, injuries, and even a reduction in the population overall. And in New Zealand, where the killer whales notably have extremely malformed fins and uh, even propeller scarring uh, all along their back from run-ins with boats. And so these are obviously going to be the primary factors in, you know, kind of advising against these sort of operations where you're swimming. For with anyone them. thinking like boats, we're talking about swimming. You can't get to a, a whale. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just want to throw that out there um, without the use of a boat. It's not yes. like the captive dolphin situations where you're getting into a pool. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these are, 100 200 ton animals that uh live in the deep ocean not not um near the coast so mm -hmm. um, it's more often than not if you're engaging in one of these you have to get on a boat although there are cases in which sometimes the animals will be close to shore and mm -hmm. that's a question that i get frequently is what do you do in the event a wild animal approaches you like this was mm -hmm. obviously the intent of the animal and if you're keeping your distance, you're doing all you can. At the end of the day, the animal has its own free will as well. And it may very well be interested in what you're doing. And I think there is definitely a right and a wrong way to go about this. When you consider about the risks that go into potentially damaging the animal and, and kind of removing that safe barrier uh, between humans and non-human species, Avoiding any further interaction and trying not to engage is going to be the best bet in, in these types of situations. You don't want to engage the animal and you don't want to let it know that, hey, this is a space for free handouts. This is a space for attention because right. you, want to keep, you want to keep these animals wild as best you as possible. You don't want to accidentally train them to yeah. approach more people. Mm -hmm. And um, I know episode 14 was when um, I dove, dove um, really far into swimming with dolphins specifically uh, with mm -hmm. Cindy Elliser from um, Pacific Mammal Research. So if you want to, listeners, if you want to learn more about that, uh, you can uh, go back and listen to that episode. It's a long one, but it's a fun one. We get really into it. And I think my personal stance and you can tell me if i'm off oh, is no. that as long as you don't 
one, chase them down with the boat, Mm -hmm. touch them or Mm -hmm. really interact with them in any way. But if you are in the water, if you're snorkeling, diving or whatever, in an area where there are whales, there are dolphins, that's okay. As long as you're keeping a distance, like the 200 Mm -hmm. yard and no food, don't touch. If they come up to you, hands to your side, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, So it is possible to still get that experience, that Instagram worthy experience of swimming with a whale, Mm -hmm. but maybe you're looking at it from further away. (laughs) But you know, a lot of the waters down where they live are so clear that you can still see them pretty clearly from that far away. You just are not going to get that photo of them like right next to you, you know, which I feel like is a fair trade-off, you know, (laughs) Um, I zoom like waterproof camera for that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good rule of thumb to sort of behave as if you were a fly on the wall. You kind of want to, you kind of want to let nature go about its business uh, as uninterrupted as possible. We already influence marine mammals and their behavior with all of our industrial activity and it harms them and it harms them seriously. And so if we are going to be engaging in ecotourism, we need to remember that there are ethical ways in order to do this. And there are in fact, wrong ways to do this. Uh, You know, we see an increasing number of reports of people chasing whales and dolphins on personal watercraft and on small boats, uh, crowding whales and resulting in the animals becoming disoriented or upset and, you know, that that does go to harm them deeper and more fundamentally, especially if we start to create a culture where we feel entitled to the presence of these animals and we are not giving them the respect that they need in order to remain healthy and remain wild. Right.
As a frequent traveler, the number one question I get from others is how I manage to find affordable flights around the world. My answer, Skyscanner. Skyscanner searches through multiple airlines to find you the best deal. But what makes it different from other platforms? If you are flexible on your days, you have the option to select cheapest month to truly find the most affordable flight. Fixed dates but flexible on your destination? Select everywhere and find the most affordable destinations for your time. My favorite way to find affordable flights is by selecting both cheapest month and everywhere. That way I could find some incredibly affordable flights from my home airport and discover some new destinations I never thought I would explore. Start planning your next vacation for free with Skyscanner using the link in the description. When you travel, you should be protected, especially if you enjoy adventurous activities or wildlife tourism. That's where travel insurance comes in. I personally use World Nomads because their coverage makes the most sense for me. They cover injuries or illnesses, lost luggage, canceled flights, and even damaged electronics. Protect yourself and your trip with World Nomads travel insurance. Check if their coverage is right for you using the link in the description. All right, Gio, to end, um, I have a couple of more like fun questions for you. Um, okay. Do you have a favorite whale moment that you have experienced? Oh, my gosh. Actually, yes. I think my most favorite whale moment happened during my last stretch of my internship right before I graduated. With the institution I worked at, we partnered up with a whale watch company based out of Port Angeles. And um, I took another one of my coworkers out and we were going to collect data on humpback whales, gray whales, anything that wasn't a killer whale. Um, our boss yeah. has this logic <laughs> that uh, our boss has this logic that everyone in Washington state studying killer whales. So damn it, let's focus on something else. Right, um, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we go out on this boat and we kind of don't know each other. Uh, she started a little bit later on in the in the research season. So, you know, we're making small talk and whatnot on the boat and we stumble upon our first group of animals and it's a pair of humpback whales. And so we are on a I think it's an 85 foot converted Coast Guard uh, cutter. So it's uh, it's a pretty large vessel about the size of a large whale. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're watching them approach and they come closer and closer and our engines are shut off. Mind you, we're following mm -hmm. all the rules and they dive underneath our boat. And we're all kind of waiting with bated breath, like, okay, well, where's it going to pop up now? Like, yeah, are we going to get eaten today? Great. Is this how it ends? And so we have our cameras and we have our data sheets and we're kind of like scrambling to keep an eye out on the whale and try and predict where it's going to pop up. And I whisper to my coworker, I'm all like, hey, wouldn't it be sick if it came up right underneath our boat? And a couple minutes later, I'm looking behind the boat off the stern and looking deep into the water and like a submarine, the humpback whale starts to rise and it breaks the surface and it breathes and it blasts that blowhole breath 
all over everybody on the boat and everyone goes insane. And now I thought that having a whale baptism would be some sort (laughs) of like spiritual fundamental experience that would change my life forever. Come to find out whale breath smells awful actually oh, God, like, I imagine. <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of rotting fish and there's definitely zoonotic diseases and pathogens swirling around in that breath but i digress the whale approaches and looks right at us and it's rolling around and this whale was actually in the news recently for doing the same exact thing his name was stitch He's a a young adult humpback whale who is known for this kind of repetitive behavior. He comes back generally to the Strait of Juan de Fuca every year um, and is known for approaching boats. And uh, oh, what did they what did they call it? They called it a whale mugging, where essentially, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this whale is quite effectively keeping us hostage out at sea. And, you know, we can't go anywhere. We can't start up our motors or anything. Yeah, yeah. He, he just wants to hang out for a second. And so I had my 300 millimeter zoom lens on me, you know, with the intention of having to photograph these whales from afar. And mm-hmm. so we... It's kind of useless, that close, right? It is, it is useless. And so I'm trying <laughs> to get some pictures and they're all blurry and my camera doesn't want to focus. And at the same time, I'm just like, what? Uh, stop messing around with this. The whale's right there. Like, just look at it. And, you know, it was, it was insane. I did end up taking a couple pictures with the 300 millimeter zoom lens, but not the photos that I thought I was going to capture. I went back as we were driving away from this interaction and it lasted maybe 45, 60 minutes. We were out there for a while while this whale essentially just toyed with us and, you know, mm-hmm. no one was complaining. I <laughs> um, went back and started reviewing the photos and I got such high depth images of this whale's mouth and lips that you could see the uh, what would you call it? Essentially the microhabitat that was living on the skin of this whale. And you could see barnacles that were specialized to live only on humpback whale skin. Uh You could see whale lice and all these different isopods that were kind of colonizing their skin and eating little bits and parasites on their bodies. And the thing that struck me the most is I got pictures of whale hair. And for viewers out there, keep in mind that whales are still mammals. And what constitutes a mammal, mostly because, you know, nature loves to deviate from our human rules. Of course. Um, You got to lactate, you got to have warm blood, and you got to have hair. And at first glance, whales don't really have hair. But if you consider evolutionarily that whales used to be a terrestrial creature, kind of resembling mm-hmm. a, a hoofed animal like an aquatic wolf with uh, hippo-like features, like a you know, really they used weird elephant, weird <laughs> elephant, weird hippo deer wolf, hippo deer wolf elephant. <laughs> Honestly, horrifying creature to look at if you look at the constructions. <laughs> they used to have whiskers, and those were used as a uh, as a kind of a primitive tool for navigation before echolocation sort of came into the picture. And you can see that 
as the whales do have residual hair follicles that are mostly restricted to the upper and lower lip of the animal and less so around other areas of the body. But I was just shocked to see that, yep, you could see tiny little stiff white hairs that used to be whiskers sticking out of his lip. And I was like, oh my God, that's whale hair. <laughs> I never would have thought in my entire life I would ever be so close to a whale that I could see its hair. And I think that's, that's probably the most magical moment I've had. Would you let me put that picture on the, on my Instagram for this episode? Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, I'll email it to you. It. I think everybody would love to see that. Second question. Do you have a bucket list whale species or whale watching destination that you would like to go to? Ooh, I do. You're hitting all the sweet spots. Here. Oh, yeah. Of <laughs> um. As another I, animal person, like, I know <laughs> I love it. I love it. I do have a whale watch bucket list. Um, and I think my location has to be in the North Atlantic, either Iceland or Norway. Norway, probably more likely because it's kind of renowned as one of the few places in the world where you can legally swim with marine mammals. And now I know we just talked about (laughs) respecting wildlife and giving them space and whatnot, but this, I've done a lot of research and I've found that a lot of the practices that are used by these whale watch companies up North are very restricting in what you can and cannot do with the animals. Obviously you can't approach them. You need to let them kind of go about their business. You can't Mm -hmm. feed the animals or anything like that. And I think one of the uh, more striking aspects of this particular region is how healthy the environment is and how good of a job that Norway and these Scandinavian countries up here in the North Atlantic are doing with regards to um, regulating their fishing industries. Mm-hmm. So we despite do, Norway being one of the countries that are still the, the irony, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> um, so in spite of that, they are doing a very good job in regulating their fishing industry. And as a result, they do have one of the healthiest populations of marine mammals of a variety of species in the entire world. I think their killer whales alone number to approximately 500 to 600 individuals in the North Atlantic alone that kind of oscillate between Iceland and Norway and, Mm -hmm. and move around through the North Atlantic by themselves. In addition to also having one of the healthiest and most robust humpback whale populations on earth. And so I think being able to go up there someday and be able to spend some quality time in an ecosystem that is nearly nearly in perfect balance with humans and non-humans that would be such a magical such a magical moment and you have this ecosystem where everybody is flocking to feed on herring and these forage fish that gather up here in these areas and you have killer whales and humpback whales and pilot whales and all sorts of different species seabirds and other marine mammals that are flocking to this congregation and they are participating with one another to Mm -hmm. take their bounty take their part of the bounty and leaving so much more herring left over for future generations. It's an inspiring mm-hmm. environment to be in. And I think that would be my whale watch bucket list. 100%. It's amazing. Yeah. And 
there's nothing inherently wrong with whale watching or swimming with whales or even whaling in general mm-hmm. if it's strictly controlled with the animal in mind versus mm-hmm. money. Versus so money. Uh, I just want to remind everyone it's okay to do these things, but you have to be extremely careful in booking tour directors or tour guides or whatever, and making sure that you're doing, you're, you're going with the best possible person or group in order to respect these animals, respect the nature around them and not cause mm. any harm. And research, my research, kind of catchphrase, research. yeah. So my kind of catchphrase on the show is don't be that asshole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't be that asshole to intentionally like go up and touch the whales or cause any harm, but also don't be that asshole and shame other people. Mm-hmm. for maybe having done these things and they didn't know any better. Yeah, so that's true. We're I all learning. never shame anybody. Yeah, we're all learning. I've done things that I'm definitely not proud of in terms of animal and wildlife tourism. Like I've ridden elephants. I've, you know, gone to animal circuses and things like that. I didn't know we, any better. We all went to SeaWorld um, as kids, you know? We like. all went to <laughs> We've all like, you know, and I need to do an episode on SeaWorld and how that that whole evolution thing it's crazy but Mm. yes um so yeah that's awesome do you have a favorite whale species or is that like trying like picking your favorite child oh goodness (laughs) gracious um i it's i do have a favorite whale species and i think it's i think it's uh it's very prominent (laughs) in my day-to-day life um i grew up i grew up learning about the ocean and about whales in general um in my first encounter with a killer whale when i was about Mm -hmm. three maybe four years old and killer whales definitely hold a special place in my heart i think they're extremely charismatic um a lot of people would probably agree then again you know you do get very smart yeah yeah they're very very smart and it all started at the vancouver aquarium up in up in british columbia and uh, I think it was, must've been like 1998, 1999, they still had their last killer whale on display. And I was lucky enough to get to see her as a kid. And, um, you know, we do, we do talk down on these marine institutions as being, you know, kind of a hub of perpetuating eh, maybe a skewed idea of what wild animals are and how they should be treated. Um, but I do need to give credit where credit is due. And I think we can agree in a lot of cases that perhaps our first exposure to animal were not the most ethical means of doing Mm -hmm. so. And I have to 100% agree. My first exposure to a killer whale was not whale watching in the wild. It was not in a book. It was not in a documentary. It was going to an aquarium where I saw one in person in captivity. And, you know, as we grew older, And as I grew older and as I learned more and more about um, the captive whale and dolphin industry, I got to know more about this whale even long after she passed in 2001. She was shipped off to SeaWorld San Diego. And that was that was a move on the aquarium's part in hopes that she would receive better veterinary care. Um, I learned later on down the line that she had chronic respiratory issues. Um, and was not responding well to a lot of the medications she was being administered. 
And so she was eventually shipped off to SeaWorld and that was the last killer whale that was ever put on display at the Vancouver Aquarium. Um, and she unfortunately passed away uh, due to uh, respiratory issues. She died of pneumonia. And I found out a lot yeah. about her life history later down the line. I found out that she was a wild capture from Iceland. I found out that she um, was actually reunited with one of uh, the captured killer whales from her local pod uh, at, San at SeaWorld San Diego. And I learned that, you know, maybe there's a better way. So awful. <laughs> yeah, kind of, kind of screwed up. It's all like, hey, man, remember? Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is that they never got along. Uh, they were very aggressive with each other, uh, even, oh, even in spite of being worse. related. And so it's all like, oh, you again. Okay, great. <laughs> God, it, it would be like, it would be like being separated from your family for years and mm -hmm. then reuniting with like your aunt Susan, who you hate. And like, <laughs> <laughs> it's all like, really? Oh, just my life. Life. Like, <laughs> but yeah i think i think killer whales definitely have to take the cake for me you know we went through the whole free willy phase and everything and yeah. went from uh wanting to train marine mammals in captivity and be a killer whale trainer to wanting to be a killer whale researcher and they've always just they've always just held a very special part uh part of my life i personally love uh whale sharks i think mm -hmm. they're so cool um, but that may change as I get more experience, like seeing more animals. I think my actually, if I now I'm thinking about it, my only whale interaction has been SeaWorld. Um, yeah. I have yet to go on whale watching tours. I haven't been down in, in like Mexico to see the, the the whales down there. Um, mm -hmm. I was in the Galapagos, but we didn't see any whales while we were there. Um, oh, we probably were, I know it was a huge bummer. Uh, we probably just weren't the right parts of the island for them, mm -hmm. but uh, we didn't see any, any dolphins or whales there, even though it was season for them. But yeah, my, my, my favorite may change, but <laughs> so I do have some whale fun facts and if you have any that pop into your head feel free sure. um so we already talked about the two groups of whales the uh baleen with the fibrous knot teeth and the <laughs> whales dolphins are actually classified as whales um mm -hmm. so a lot of people you know separate them dolphins are it's it's like what turtles are tortoises but tortoises aren't turtles kind of thing i um, I, I use the analogy I, I, I actually don't know about that one, but I do like the analogy of comparing whales and dolphins to uh, rectangles and squares in that mm. all, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. So, right. you know, all dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. Dolphins are kind of a, right. a, a lower and more recent evolutionary classification of whales in general. Yes. So humpback whales don't eat for a good portion of the year as they migrate from their tropical breeding grounds to the Antarctic. Um, and this can last between five and a half to seven and a half months of not eating, yeah. which is nuts. They, they survive on their fat stores. And sometimes and all with a suckling the melon, baby. The big, <laughs> oh yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, sorry, I didn't mean to say. <laughs> disgusted boys <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, motherhood gross <laughs> i know whale babies whale motherhood awesome me yeah. ugh. 
Um, (laughs) So we talked briefly about the the melon um, that toothed whales have on their forehead to help them echolocate. Um, And you may have, people may have seen them probably most prominently in like bottlenose dolphins where they've got that big bulbous forehead. Some whales bubble net feed where they cooperatively blow bubbles and trap prey in them, making it easier to come up and eat them. Um, Have Mm -hmm. you ever seen that? I have not seen bubble net feeding. So I do believe that is a behavior that's almost, if not completely exclusive to humpback whales. Um, And it's actually, it's actually, um, they engage in, oh, what would you call it? Uh, It's a cultural practice, so to speak. So not every population of humpback whales (laughs) actually bubble feeds or bubble net feeds. Some of them engage in a different practice. The ones around here in Puget Sound they do what is called lunge feeding, where essentially they identify and locate a bait ball, which is like a huge congregation of fish or krill or some other small prey species for them. And they essentially come up from the depths and they, they, they pounce and they open their mouths wide and they swallow a huge mouthful all at once with the unsuspecting prey. Bubble net feeding I think is more limited to the tropics and also to Alaska. But what's interesting is that there's also a feeding mechanism and I forget what the technical term is for it, where essentially the whale hovers in the water column with a tail to the bottom and head in the air. Yeah, like the straight up and down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it sits with its mouth wide open and waits for fish to swim into its mouth and then it sort of traps them, almost like a almost like a carnivorous plant would. Like, yeah, like a Venus flytrap, or even like an alligator snapping turtle. How they keep their head out. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would Just be so like weird that. to see a, a whale do it, though. <laughs> and it only started happening in the Pacific Northwest recently. We have a theory that it is a learned behavior that one of these animals was probably exposed to in a different region. Sometimes with whale populations, there's a little bit of interchange. So sometimes individuals will decide, oh, maybe I don't want to spend my summer here. Maybe I want to go somewhere different. And they'll go to another neighboring region where, you know, inevitably they will pick up on different cultural practices and they may learn from each other. See. Fun facts with Stacia and Geo. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, so narwhals, yeah. Narwhals are whales, mm-hmm. which I, I guess I kind of knew, but never really thought about. The name narwhal is Old Norse, meaning corpse whale, due to uh-huh. their skin color uh, that resembles a drowned sailor, which narwhals are so cute and I will never look at them the same. And I am so <laughs> sorry to everybody else. <laughs> Hey, do you, do, do you want to make it worse? Because I can make, make it worse. Let's make it worse. Go okay. ahead. If you don't Excellent. want to hear, fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> so narwhals have two teeth, mm-hmm. almost, almost like a beaver. They're buck-toothed. And mm-hmm. it is primarily in the males where the left tooth will begin to spiral forward and corkscrew and rupture through the upper lip, which is what that tusk is. So mm-hmm. these animals primarily feed using a uh, mechanism called suction feeding where essentially they slurp their prey up like, and it and it's like a very it's a yeah just like that just kind of <laughs> like soup 
And it's a, it's a very drastic and it's a very forceful action that can actually chip away at their teeth and cause them to lose the other one. But if you look at a narwhal skull, it's really interesting. You will actually see that, yeah, that tooth used to be a regular incisor tooth and has just ended up corkscrewing and piercing through its upper lip. Evolution is crazy, dude. I don't know. Like, I don't know what Mother Nature was smoking when she made narwhals, <laughs> but I want what she's having. <laughs> oh, smokes. The Antarctic blue whale is the largest current living animal on the planet. So there have been larger, but weighing up to 200 tons. And they consume about 3,600 kilograms or nearly 8,000 pounds of krill a day, mm-hmm. which is nuts that's a lot of krill and with a that's mouth a that big krill. you got and with a body that big you gotta fuel you gotta fuel the goods you know <laughs> um, and uh killer whales are considered the ocean's top predator so it's not sharks it's mm-hmm. not whatever other scary animals there are in the ocean it's a killer whale <laughs> that's true you know i i must say i have felt safer in the water and I haven't swam with killer whales. I have kayaked with them though. I have felt safer in the water with killer whales than I have around sea lions. I have to say. Oh God, <laughs> sea lions will mess you up. Sea lions <laughs> terrify me. Like in addition to just being effectively the marine equivalent of a bear, um, they're, yeah, yeah. they're huge they're, and they're- they can be nasty. They're way bigger than most people realize because you usually see them like from crazy distance Mm -hmm. and you think they're going to be the size of like a dog because people refer to them as like sea puppies or sea dogs all the time, but they're like massive. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm convinced that when they came up with that episode of SpongeBob where they were talking about the sea bear, no, I am convinced sea lions are the sea bear. Like, <laughs> don't wear your sombrero upside down don't do it <laughs> don't eat cheese sliced or cubed <laughs> oh my gosh are we adults i don't remember nah it's fine we were only born in the 1900s <laughs> Don't cry to you. Oh, it's fine. Okay, so that is all the research and stuff I had today. Would you like to plug your Instagram or anything else that you're doing? I know you have some really awesome. I love seeing your um, artwork and your um, animal photography on your Instagram. Yeah, I do dabble in a little bit of other hobbies too. I'm not just uh, I'm not just a, a little book nerd. Um, if you guys want to give me a follow, I'm on Instagram as nat.geo.wild. And yes, that is a play on Nat Geo Wild. That's <laughs> N-A-T dot G-I-O dot wild. Um, and yeah, I, do so have to, I do have to approve you. Not G-E-O. <laughs> not G-E-O. No, a lot of people, you can tell a lot about a person by whether or not they assume me to be affiliated with National Geographic. And I'm not, by the way. <laughs> right. Oh, but yeah. Um, if you want to see some cool whale art and if you want to get into my... just trying to get people to think that. So maybe... Yeah, maybe they can influence a little bit. Maybe, uh, who knows? Yeah, maybe yeah. they'll give me a little leeway one way or another. Maybe it'll be like, oh, when did we hire this guy? Whatever. <laughs> this you guy? Know, he's affiliated with Nat Geo Wild. 
I hope you guys <laughs> like shit posts because I'm a meme queen. <laughs> like <laughs> when I'm not taking well, pictures of wildlife. They, don't, they shouldn't be following me anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, give true. me a follow. And then Stacia will also be posting that image and maybe even she'll tag me to make it a little bit easier for you guys. Always. Oh, Always. there we go. And maybe I'll post a picture of your beautiful face. <gasps> my face <laughs> maybe from that time you took me touring around all the um like on the beach and oh, we went the all the tide peninsula. pools and you were like oh this is this animal and this is this animal and this is this animal i'm your walking field guide <laughs> yes i know more about like i'm i'm like the land mammal person wes who is my husband for those of you who haven't figured that out yet um, is the reptile and bird guy. And then the two of us were with Geo and he's the ocean guy. So it was a fun time. We were just like, oh, here's this animal and here's this animal. And look at that. There's that bird. <laughs> we have a good time out there. We make a, a pretty time. cool team. We, we sat on a cliff with binoculars staring at the ocean for like an hour wishing that a whale would come up but we, never we tried to manifest tried Some, very hard sometimes they stump us what are you gonna do i know of the whole ocean why didn't you come up during this specific hour at this specific beach i know we'll we'll send them a zoom invite next time maybe that'll... Go. do you think the signal will reach uh yeah. No, my smartphone, my smartphone doesn't even register that I'm in the States anymore by the time I get out on the ocean. It's all like, I don't know That's where true. I am. <laughs> I'm sure whales probably don't even, whales probably don't even use the internet or anything, despite we all know they have finger bones in those. <sighs> Lucky bastards. I know. What a simple life they lead. I know. All right. Well, thank you, Gio. Hey, this thank you for awesome. having me, Stacia. This is great. I appreciate you for having me on here and, and for letting me share some of my knowledge. Maybe I'll have you back on when I talk about SeaWorld in the future. <gasps> it could I'm be sure cool. you have thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts and I have a lot of opinions. I love it. <laughs> what we do here. A lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions, a lot of research. A lot of research, lots of empirical evidence to back them up. But that means you're going to have to come over and we're going to have to watch uh, Blackfin. Oh, oh my God. But uh, you better bring Queen Nexus because I am going to cry. <laughs> I always do without fail. I don't know if I've actually seen Blackfin. I think I've intentionally avoided it. That's fair. That I'll bring the Queen Nexus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll have lots of Queen. And, and my therapy cat. <laughs> Excellent. Mr. Loki. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Go thank ahead. you for having me, Stacia. This has been excellent. Give it up for Gio. Wasn't he amazing? <laughs> I'm really hoping to have him back. Maybe we'll do a deep dive into SeaWorld, if you guys would be interested in that. And uh, maybe watch Blackfish together. Maybe post some videos of us crying on TikTok, whatever. Uh, so uh, make sure to hit that follow button um, for Humane Nature wherever you are getting your podcasts, as well as leave a five-star review, and in your review, comment your favorite weird animal fact. I will read it on the following episode after re re receiving your review, so why don't you try to freak me out with your favorite weird animal fact? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok at StumbleSafari. And uh, remember to follow Gio as well and check out my Instagram for that photo that he mentioned. And uh, I will hear you guys next time. Sources for today's show can be found in the link in the description. Thanks for listening.